0: chapter 10 of the ocean waifs this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by Dion jones salt lake city utah the ocean waifs by thomas main reed chapter 10 the pilot fish this opportune deliverance from the most fearful of deaths had inspired the sailor with a hope that they might still by some further interference of providence, escape their perilous position. Relying on this hope, he resolved to leave no means untried that might promise to lead to its realization. They were now furnished with a stock of water which, if carefully hoarded, would last them for weeks. If they could only obtain a proportionate supply of food, there would still be a chance of their sustaining life until some ship might make its appearance for of course they thought not of any other means of deliverance to think of food was to think of fishing for it in the vast reservoir of the ocean under and around them there was no lack of nourishing food if they could only grasp it but the sailor well knew that the shy slippery denizens of the deep are not to be captured at will and that with all the poor schemes they might be enabled to contrive their efforts to capture even a single fish might be exerted in vain. Still they could try, and with that feeling of hopeful confidence, which usually precedes such trials, they set about making preparations. The first thing was to make hooks and lines. There chanced to be some pins in their clothing, and with these Ben soon constructed a tolerable set of hooks. A line was obtained by untwisting a piece of rope, and re-spinning it to the proper thickness, and then a float was found by cutting a piece of wood to the proper dimensions, and for a sinker there was the leaden bullet, with which little William had of late so vainly endeavoured to allay the pangs of thirst. The bones and fins of the flying fish, the only part of it not eaten, would serve for bait. They did not promise to make a very attractive one, for there was not a morsel of flesh left upon them. But Ben knew that there are many kinds of fish inhabiting the great ocean that will seize at any sort of bait, even a piece of rag, without considering whether it be good for them or not. They had seen fish several times near the raft during that very day, but suffering as they were from thirst more than hunger, and despairing of relief to the more painful appetite, they had made no attempt to capture them now however they were determined to set about it in earnest the rain had ceased falling the breeze no longer disturbed the surface of the sea the clouds had passed over the canopy of the heavens the sky was clear and the sun bright and hot as before ben standing erect upon the raft with the baited hook in his hand looked down into the deep blue water even the smallest fish could have been seen many fathoms below the surface and far over the ocean william on the other side of the raft was armed with hook and line and equally on the alert for a long time their vigil was unrewarded no living thing came within view nothing was under their eyes save the boundless field of ultramarine beautiful but to them at that moment marked only by a miserable monotony they had stood thus for a full hour when an exclamation escaping from the lad caused his companion to turn and look to the other side of the raft. A fish was in sight. It was that which had drawn the exclamation from the boy, who was now swinging his line in the act of casting it out. The ejaculation had been one of joy. It was checked on his perceiving that the sailor did not share it. On the contrary, a cloud came over the countenance of the latter on perceiving the fish, whose species he at once recognized. And why, for it was one of the most beautiful of the finny tribe, a little creature of perfect form, of a bright azure blue, with transverse bands of deeper tint, forming rings around its body. Why did Ben Brace show disappointment at its appearance? "'You needn't trouble to throw out your line, little Willem,' he said. "'That ear takes no bait, not it.' "'Why?' asked the boy. "'Because it's something else to do than forage for itself.' I dare say its master ain't far off. What is it? That be the pilot fish. See? Turns away from us. It's gone back to him as has sent it. Sent it? Who, Ben? A shark, for sartin'. Didn't I tell ye? Look yonder. Two of em. As I live. And the biggest kind they be. Slash my timbers if I ever see such a pair. They have fins like lug sails. Look. Look the pilot's gone to guide em hang me if they ben't a comin this way william had looked in the direction pointed out by his companion he saw the two great dorsal fins standing several feet above the water he knew them to be those of the white shark for he had already seen these dreaded monsters of the deep on more than one occasion it was true as ben had hurriedly declared the little pilot fish after coming within twenty fathoms of the raft had turned suddenly in the water and gone back to the sharks, and now it was seen swimming a few feet in advance of them, as if in the act of leading them on. The boy was struck with something in the tone of his companion's voice that led him to believe there was danger in the proximity of these ugly creatures, and to say the truth Ben did not behold them without a certain feeling of alarm. On the deck of a ship they might have been regarded without any fear, but upon a frail structure like that which supported the castaways, their feet almost on a level with the surface of the water, it was not so very improbable that the sharks might attack them. In his experience the sailor had known cases of a similar kind. It was no matter of surprise that he should feel uneasiness at their approach, if not actual fear but there was no time left either for him to speculate as to the probabilities of such an attack or for his companion to question him about them scarcely had the last words parted from his lips when the foremost of the two sharks was seen to lash the water with its broad forked tail and then coming on with a rush it struck the raft with such a force as almost to capsize it the other shark shot forward in a similar manner but glancing a little to one side, caught in its huge mouth the end of the dolphin striker, grinding off a large piece of the spar, as if it had been corkwood. This it swallowed almost instantaneously, and then turning once more in the water, appeared intent upon renewing the attack. Ben and the boy had dropped their hooks and lines, the former instinctively arming himself with the axe, while the latter seized upon the spare handspike. Both stood ready to receive the second charge of the enemy. It was made almost on the instant. The shark that had just attacked was the first to return, and coming on with the velocity of an arrow, it sprang clear above the surface, projecting its hideous jaws over the edge of the raft. For a moment the frail structure was in danger of being either capsized or swamped altogether, and then the fate of its occupants would undoubtedly have been to become food for sharks. But it was not the intention of Ben Brace or his youthful comrade to yield up their lives without striking a blow in self-defense, and that given by the sailor at once disembarrassed himself of his antagonist. Throwing one arm around a mast in order to steady himself, and raising the light-axe in the other, he struck outward and downward with all his might. The blade of the axe, guided with an unswerving arm, fell right upon the snout of the shark, just midway between its nostrils, cleaving the cartilaginous flesh to the depth of several inches and laying it open to the bones. There could not have been chosen a more vital part upon which to inflict a wound, for huge as is the white shark, and strong and vigorous as are all animals of this ferocious family, a single blow upon the nose with a handspike, or even a billet of wood, if laid on with a heavy hand, will suffice to put an end to their predatory courses. And so it was with the shark struck by the axe of Ben Brace. As soon as the blow had been administered, the creature rolled over on its back, and after a fluke or two with its great forked tail, and a tremulous shivering through its body, it lay floating upon the water motionless as a log of wood. William was not so fortunate with his antagonist, though he had succeeded in keeping it off striking wildly out with the handspike in a horizontal direction he had poked the butt-end of the implement right between the jaws of the monster just as it raised its head over the raft with the mouth wide open the shark seizing the handspike in its treble row of teeth with one shake of its head whipped it out of the boy's hands and then rushing on through the water was seen grinding the timber into small fragments and swallowing it as if it had been so many crumbs of bread or pieces of meat. In a few seconds not a bit of the hand-spike could be seen, save some trifling fragments of the fibrous wood that floated on the surface of the water. But what gave greater gratification to those who saw them was the fact that the shark, which had thus made mincemeat of the piece of timber, was itself no longer to be seen. Whether because it had satisfied the cravings of its appetite by that wooden banquet or whether it had taken the alarm at witnessing the fate of its companion by much the larger of the two was a question of slight importance either to ben brace or to william for whatever reason and under any circumstances they were but too well pleased to be disembarrassed of its hideous presence and as they came to the conclusion that it had gone off for good and saw the other one lying on its white belly turned upwards upon the surface of the water evidently dead as a herring they could no longer restrain their voices but simultaneously raised them in a shout of victory End of chapter ten